0: You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Hey friends, it's Kurt. Wanted to say hello on Good Friday. And today what I want to do is I want to offer some reflections on Good Friday and, and really try my best to give us some insights to what's happening. Why, for instance, do we call this good? And why is Jesus on the cross? And what is Jesus's human experience, especially as well as, of course, his divine experience there? But what is he experiencing There's going to be a line in there about God's experience as Trinity, in a sense, right? They're split, at least, uh, Father and Son. And the Father and the Son have this interaction where Jesus cries out to the Father, And what's going on there? So, we're gonna talk about that. And it's really, if you've been at Pangea for a while, we talked about this back in 2017 on Good Friday. And so, what I'm doing is really giving some of those reflections, but kind of through a different lens today. And I wanna really think about Good Friday from the point of narrative. Now, all of us have narratives that shape our reality. We all have stories we tell ourselves about why the world is the way the world is and our place within that world. And right now, it's really challenging, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, one of the hardest things about this season is we're in the midst of this pandemic and there are a lot of unknowings, right? There's a lot of things that we just can't tell how they're going to pan out. And that's hard. Most of us in Seattle have been in our homes for over a month, except to go to the grocery store or for essential services, or if we're an essential service person who has that as their career, the rest of us have been home most of the time, maybe going on walks through the neighborhood, but that's about it. And if that's the biggest problem some of us face, I think that's okay right my life is not the simplest uh you know i have kids here at home and i love that there's so many gifts and treasures that are just emerging by having both my kiddos here at home and lauren here at home but it's also hard How do two working parents work when we have kids that we have to watch after? Well, we're having to come up with solutions, right? Some of you are isolating sort of by yourself. Maybe you're single. And it's like, how do I do this with minimal human contact? And of course, our Zoom gatherings and various other ways of staying connected have been good. But it's hard. And so what do we do in the midst of something that is both awful and yet good? Why is it good? Well, many people pointed out that we're slowing down our pace. We're asking new questions about what it means to be people in a society like ours, both here in the United States and globally. And, you know, it kind of brings up a few things that I was thinking about when it comes to Lent. I mean, in the season of Lent that we're about to come to its resolution, in we're invited into these like cumbersome, hard, challenging spaces. And sometimes people actually fast throughout Lent to open themselves up to self-awareness and God awareness. And yet here we are, all of us have had to fast in some ways. And it's not just about, oh no, we're stuck in our homes, but real people throughout the world are dying. Real people are suffering. Real people are scared. Some of your family members are scared. Some of you might be scared. Maybe you know someone who's had COVID-19. All of this is a great mystery in a lot of ways. What are we stepping into? And that's kind of the way our world is. God, 2000 years ago, chose to step into our mysterious web of beauty and pain and stepped into it and experienced both the fullness of beauty, the fullness of love, the fullness of life. Jesus knew that experienced that and the fullness of death, the worst kind of death, even death on a cross. And so we sit here with all of our pain and we recognize that there is a God who chose solidarity with the world that we have, a world of pandemics, a world of pain, a world of struggle, a world of insecurity, a world of fear, and yet a world of hope and beauty and potential and community and friendship and all of the good things that come with the bad. Well, Good Friday is kind of like that. It's hard to call it Good Friday because we know that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lord, Jesus of Nazareth was executed. Why is that good? Well, it's good because of how ugly it is that a God came so close, so near, that this God was willing to take on the worst of the world, the worst of the powers of evil, so that something good could emerge for humankind out of it. Beauty, love hope, possibility, eternal life. I mean, this is what makes it good. It's ugliness is what makes it so beautiful in so many ways. And so as we step into Good Friday and we have all of these complexities, all of these challenges, I wanted to talk about narrative for a minute. What story are we telling about God? What story are we living out? Like, what are we living into? And so that's kind of where we're going. And um, I wanted to offer a few reflections on the gospel of Mark's telling of the crucifixion and the connection to Psalm 22, which often comes up because there's a bunch of narratives that we often have as Christians. One being, is there a God up there who, if we don't do the right thing, wants to punish us? wants to inflict violence on us. Is Jesus experiencing that kind of God on the cross? Is God the Father punishing God the Son? And what does that say about God's love towards us? We talk about God as a heavenly parent, a heavenly Father. Is God the Father good? Is Jesus a victim of God's anger? I think I want to suggest that that is so far from the biblical narrative. Yet at the same time, um, it may not be a big deal for some of us. There's some folks who would say, you know what? That hasn't changed my lens on God or it hasn't kept me up at night. I just trust God no matter what. And I think that trust no matter what is beautiful. But for those of you where the narrative, the way we talk about Jesus's death is something that informs the way you understand your relationship to God. Hopefully this will be a reminder of why you don't have to live in fear and that there is a God who enters our mess. And that storyline is a storyline we can cling to. And so I want to step in and talk about our stories about God's posture. What kinds of stories do we tell? What kinds of stories do we experience? Now, if you grew up in a household where you were afraid of your parent or parents, and you were in a situation where fear and um, obedience kind of moved together. So if you did the right things, your fear was lessened. But if you did the wrong things, then you could experience anger and wrath or, and this doesn't have to be physical violence, although for some of us, that was true. That was true in my own story, but it also could be emotional. It also can be spiritual abuse. There's all kinds of things that when you pair fear and the need to do what's right all together, man, that that, does a pretty nasty narrative to try and live out. It's almost impossible. It's almost like the narrative itself that we talk about as Christians that Jesus comes to liberate us from shame actually accidentally reinforces shame. There's all kinds of other narratives that may be true about how you experience God's posture. But what I want to do is I want to talk about how Jesus experienced God, the father's posture. Now it gets a little confusing, right? Because we're talking about God um, proper. What do I mean by God proper? I mean like the Trinity, right? So God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit together, they, these three persons are one unified God. There are three Experiential persons that are one God. And so Jesus is fully God, God the Father is fully God, God the Holy Spirit is fully God, and together they are fully God. It's a profound mystery. So we're not simply talking about how does Jesus experience God, because Jesus is God. We're, We're talking about how does Jesus experience God the Father. And it gets a little funky, but I want to just kind of name that there's a lot of these theological layers to the crucifixion that we have to notice. But what I want to do is say, okay, so how do narrative shape us and how do the narrative of Jesus really shape his experience of God? And maybe that's where we can land today in the midst of all of the mess, in the midst of all of the COVID-19 scare and all of the stuff we're holding even before the pandemic. Because here's the truth. You and I already had issues we were wrestling with way before this pandemic. You were already struggling. You were already hurting. You were already insecure in some way. You already knew of people that were marginalized. You already knew that certain people in this world had less opportunity than you. And yet here we are. And so our stories about God's posture shape everything. And James Brian Smith, the spiritual writer, he, he says it this way. He says, we are shaped by our stories. In fact, our stories once in place determine much of our behavior without regard to their accuracy or helpfulness. Once these stories are stored in our minds, they stay there largely unchallenged until we die. And here is the main point. These narratives are running and often ruining our lives. That is why it is crucial to get the right narratives. This, I think, just tells the story so well. The stories of our mind, our imagination, that space where we experience what is true, we interpret what we experience in the imagination. It's, it's a storyline that we have to challenge. Is it good and beautiful? Kind of like James Bryan Smith's book, The Good and Beautiful God, right? Is it a good and beautiful God that we are pursuing? Not because we want one or need one, but but here's the deal: because the Bible portrays one. You, you hear me? Some people might hear some of this and say, Oh, you really want a nice God. Well, I know God is a lot of things, and nice is something I experienced from God, kindness and goodness and love and um, solidarity from God. But I also know that God has justice in mind and these other things. And so we have to bring all of that into play. But what's the foundational narrative? What's the story Jesus told about God the Father that we can then say, that's the story we want. So here's Mark's telling of the crucifixion. And we're going to get to that core line in Psalm uh, in the Psalm that Jesus quotes. And we're going to talk about that today. So so here's the whole context, though. This is uh, chapter 15, verse 24. It says, they crucified him. They divided up his clothes, drawing lots for them to determine who would take what. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The notice of the formal charge against him was written, the king of the Jews. They crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right, one on his left. People walking by insulted him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha, you were, so you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, were you? Save yourself and come down from that cross. In the same way, the chief priests were making fun of him among themselves, together with the legal experts. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. Then we'll see and believe. Even those who had been crucified with Jesus insulted him. From noon until three in the afternoon, the whole earth was dark. At three, Jesus cried out with a loud shout, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you left me? Psalm 22, 1. After hearing him, some standing there said, Look, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a pole. He offered it to Jesus to drink saying, Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and died. The curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw how he died, he said, This man was certainly God's son. I can't imagine the scene. You know, the four gospels give us different angles and pictures of what's happening. There's a little overlap between some of the sayings of Jesus, but we have compiled them, at least from the gospel accounts, into seven different sayings that Jesus has from the cross. And I would say by far, the one that he quotes from Psalm 22 is the one that we hear about most often. Perhaps that and forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And so what do we do with that? Here's Psalm 22.1. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? There's so much already in this first verse. Notice the word forsaken. I think the common English Bible had left, at least in Mark's version of the telling of that Psalm. And also notice the word groaning, which this is a really important word throughout the Bible, throughout the Hebrew Bible, all the way into the New Testament. This word groaning should trigger something in us because it's the word that we hear in the Exodus story. In the Exodus story, there is this sense that people are groaning, That people are experiencing suffering in the midst of their slavery. It says that people groaned. And then, you know, you move all the way into the New Testament and it comes up over and over again. You get it in, uh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping on the thought. Oh, Romans. There it is. Romans chapter 8. You get it in Romans 8 and it says the whole creation is groaning, waiting for its liberation from decay. So this, my friends, is a very significant passage. Jesus quotes the first line of verse one, and we have to ask ourselves, what's going on here? Well, here's a comparison. I think there's some really interesting parallels between Mark 15 and Psalm 22. By the way, this chart comes from my professor and friend, Tim Getter, in his commentary on Mark and the Believer's Church Bible Commentary. And some of these insights actually were highlighted to me by a friend named Phil in seminary. So Phil, if you happen to see this, big shout out. Your paper um, kind of compiled a lot of this information that I think has just been helpful in my own journey. So I appreciate that. But here's what I want to say. I want you to notice on the screen that there are various parallels between the way, if we were to read all of Psalm 22, which we're not going to do today, and look at Mark 24, Mark 15, 24 through 39, you see all of these parallels. Now, they're not exact, but it's almost as though Mark had in mind the meaning behind Jesus' words in Psalm 22, and he had a significant historical event that happened to parallel it quite well. So there's some garment comparisons. There's people who are encircling Jesus and encircling the psalmist. There's um, folks who wag their heads and wag their heads. Is, I mean, it's, Who wags their head? I don't know if you wag your head, but wagging your head. I don't know. Even, yeah, I don't know what that is, but whatever. Wag your head. <laughs> he can't save himself in Mark 15. And in Psalm 22, of course, it's let God save him. It's kind of the same thing. They're both reviled or scorned. There's a great cry. Jesus cries out. And then there's this sense of universal salvation as both the story of Jesus's execution end and also in Psalm 22. And this isn't universal salvation like always, you know, everyone gets saved no matter what or anything weird like that. As much as to say, it's for everyone who sees it, everyone who wants it. It's not for the holy few. And so, the parallels just rhetorically are are just fascinating if you look at this, and it really brings up a question. What is Jesus doing in quoting that line of Psalm 22, especially when Mark gives us all of these clues about some very similar sorts of things happening between Jesus and the psalmist? Well, here's the deal. Jesus, in quoting the first line, is evoking every line of that psalm. That that is really. Oh, I just hit my desk. <laughs> that is really important to highlight. It comes up so often, and this is the narrative piece that I think we need to think about. It comes up so often. Is Jesus really like forsaken by God? Like, did God really, God the Father, really abandon God the Son in this moment? Because God the Father saw Jesus absorbing the sin of the world, and in so seeing that, God the Father could not be near it because God the Father is holy. There's a lot of things that I can understand about that. I believe in God's holiness, of course. But here's what's really fascinating. If God is omnipresent, for instance— Is it even possible for God to forsake in the sense of distancing God's self? I don't think so. And even relationally or experientially, is is this how God works? Is God always pulling back or always pulling and pushing towards? And I think God is always kind of moving towards humankind, always moving towards the earth to bring healing, hope, and redemption. But what really matters is not my opinion about those things. It's what Jesus is doing. Now, we know this about Jewish culture, that they would have known the scriptures so well that when you quote a segment of something, you get the entire thing that it's referring to. So if you quote the beginning of Psalm 22, everyone's going to be thinking, oh, I know this Psalm. I know what he's getting at. And so they're not thinking, oh, it's just one line. It's the whole thing. It's like if I were to quote a line, I saw the sign and it opened up my eyes, you would probably know. I saw the sign, life is demanding without understanding, right? And maybe you don't know that song from Ace of Base in the 90s, but that's a song that's in my head. And if I hear the the phrase even, I saw the sign, and it might be about a traffic sign, it might be in the Bible, I don't know. And I automatically go to Ace of Base because that was part of my childhood upbringing when it came to music. And so we get this, we, we understand Jewish culture it makes perfect sense that they would understand Jesus is evoking the entire storyline of that song. And as we saw, it's not about God abandoning. There's more to it than that. Look at the flow of it. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then the enemies are mocking him. He sees these encircling evildoers. Verse 11, don't be far from me. You know, God, um, be near is what the uh, psalmist is saying. And then of course, by the latter part of it, This psalmist is like, I'm going to praise you no matter what. I'm going to praise you no matter how I feel or how near you feel. And it talks about praising him some more in verse 23, verse 24. God heard when I cried out to him. Just like God hears the groaning of the suffering uh, Israelites under the, the evil Pharaoh of the Egyptians, right? In their slavery. God hears their cry and God also hears the cry of the psalmist in the same kind of way. And so the psalmist can declare the dominion, uh, the rulership, everything belongs to the Lord. And God has done it. I mean, that's so fascinating. That's how it ends. It is finished. If we were to think of Jesus, God has done it. God has accomplished something. God didn't disappear. God was near the entire time. The psalm is about God, God the Father, to God the Son. The psalm is about God identifying with us when we feel abandoned. Jesus genuinely felt abandoned, but knew that he was not. And that narrative is the narrative that Jesus invites us to experience in the midst of pain, suffering, and questions like pandemics, like the suffering that we had before the pandemic, and like the suffering that will come after it we will feel abandoned by God. We'll be like, where's God? Where did he go? I thought God was good. That's totally understandable. And yet Jesus says, you may feel that way, but God is always in solidarity. God is always working for our good. God is always coming close, even when it doesn't feel like it. God doesn't disappear just because it appears that God has disappeared. God the Father has no wrath to pour out on Jesus, only a plan to restore him. You know, if God needed to pour wrath out on on Jesus, right? Especially active wrath. And what do I mean by active wrath? The kind of wrath that God puts and does actively rather than sort of handing over people to their own consequences, that this idea that God was actively using wrath. Well, yeah, I I would want to acknowledge that. But the forsakenness is actually about fidelity, not forsakenness actually, right? Right. Like that, that's what's so crazy about this. If, if Jesus is there and says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? However, we want to construe that. And, and God is like, well, you think I have, but I'm actually still here. That's not wrath. That's love. That's fidelity. That's um, empathy. If nothing else, God has a plan to restore him. Just like at the end of the Psalm, God has done it. Well, through Jesus, even though he dies, God has done it. That is the resurrection. My friends, the resurrection is coming. That has to play into our narrative. Is God approachable? Is God good? Is Good Friday good, even though it's ugly? And of course, the Psalm 24, I think this is such an important passage. Uh, Psalm 22, 24 says this. It says, because he didn't despise or detest the suffering of the one who suffered. So the suffering psalmist or Jesus in this case, right? He didn't hide his face from me. No, he listened when I cried out to him for help. Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you left me? Why have you abandoned? Why have you forsaken? And yet, what he knows about the psalm is that God listens, God hears, God is in fidelity with those who suffer and who love him. And so, friends, as we think about Good Friday, as we think about um, Good Friday and asking the question, is this good? Well, it's good because God chose solidarity with humanity and experienced the worst of human wrath and ultimately demonic wrath. And yet, this God chose to love us. This God chose to be with us. This God is here now. And so when we feel abandoned, when there's pandemics and when there's things that feel out of control, I I don't want to try and sit here and say, well, don't worry, God's in control. No, no, no. God is in fidelity. God is with you. God is with us. Even in death, God is with us because God isn't a God who settles for death. God is a God who brings resurrection. Friends, as you hold all of the pain, all of the struggles, all of the stories that may be coming into your heart and mind, know this, that God loves you. God will not forsake you. God will not abandon you. God is the God of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. God sees you in your groaning, in your joy, and everything in between. And that, my friends, is the storyline that Jesus offers us, that when we feel like God is missing, God is actually present and working with us and towards us for our good. May you see the beauty in the ugliness of a God who comes close. May you see that on Good Friday, the goodness of God is on full display. And may you know that the story of God is about your flourishing, that this God wants to show you who you can become as you follow Jesus and follow Jesus's way of experiencing God the Father and experiencing the whole Trinity because this God is good.